Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Let me pray before we read. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and grace that has just been poured out um, in this body of believers, in our families, and our lives individually. We praise you and magnify you that you've changed our hearts and made us worshipers in spirit and in truth. And we come here this morning from all manner of different walks of life. Um, and every kind of week has been had by the individuals that make up this church. But we're here now and we're here expecting that we will hear from you. So Jesus, we pray that everything that we do here this morning would make much of you. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to remember mercy. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in our hearts and minds so that whatever else happens when we emerge from this service, we're convinced that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. <clears throat> and it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the, from the east to, to Jerusalem, I have read this before, <laughs> saying, where is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, Herod rather, summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, I was talking to uh, Matt Matheson Colors last night, and uh, he, he asked towards the end of the conversation, he said, well, I'm not going to be there tomorrow, so what are you, you going to preach? And I said, well, I'm preaching the wise men. And he said what I've been thinking all week, which is, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on the wise men, so what exactly are you going to get out of that passage? And I said, I don't know yet. 
Uh, this was at about 9 p.m. My outline was done, but I didn't really, I still, the Holy Spirit hadn't given me the hook. He hadn't given me what it was that we all needed to hear. So I told Matt, um, you know me, man, I'll just read something into the text if I have to. So (laughs) there's a little bit of that here this morning, but uh, through diligent prayer and seeking, I think I found a nugget uh, that will help us to, to accomplish a couple of things. Number one, it'll help us to appreciate Christmas, and uh, it'll help us to love Jesus more. So let's start with the characters here. You've got Herod, and um, if I can arm any of you with a little bit of apologetic against uh, the more common complaints of the anti-theist, I'm doing it. <laughs> it's just comfortable. Um, <clears throat> here's what I would say. You, you will hear people say that there's conflict and contradiction in the Scripture because of things like this. And, and this is an easy one to knock down. Herod dies by the end of this chapter and yet is somehow still in existence at the trial of Jesus. And that is because there were at least three Herods that we know of. This Herod is Herod the Great, and his story goes something like this. Um, He was appointed governor of Galilee, basically, in 47 B.C. And then seven years into his governorship, um, the Parthians invaded and ran uh, Herod and his contingent out. And it wasn't until, I think, B.C. 37 that Rome um, went back in and moved, removed the Parthians. And at that point, because Herod had fled Galilee into Rome, he had become friends with uh, Octavian, who was Caesar at the time, and Mark Antony. So he convinced them to make him king of Jerusalem. So he became king of Jerusalem in 37 B.C., And he stopped being king of Jerusalem in 4 BC when he died. Now, if you're paying attention, this is a little odd because if, you know, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, is 0 AD, then how did Herod the Great die before Jesus was born? Well, Jesus was probably born in 5 or 6 BC. It's just, you know... But they did the best they could, I guess, when they came up with the Gregorian calendar. And this is where we are. So 6 probably B.C., you've got the birth of Christ. And I will suggest to you that these events happened even somewhat after that. Um, Herod the Great is known by Christians as the one who initiated the slaughter of all of the children, male children, two years and younger in Galilee, or at least in Bethlehem. Most um, secular historians don't acknowledge that event because they say the primary source for it historically is the Bible, and secular historians are doing everything they can to eradicate the Bible as a dependable means of history. Um, Unfortunately for them, there are others who make mention of the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. It most certainly happened. Herod wasn't a great guy. Um, He killed at least one of his wives because he suspected her of infidelity. 
And if that weren't enough, he murdered two of his sons because he suspected they were coming after the throne. Um, so you wouldn't put it past a guy like that to, to kill babies in Bethlehem, right? right. And I, I won't get into the atrocity of the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem this morning, but I will say this. What Herod did in Bethlehem pales in comparison to what the United States of America did last week when it comes to murdering babies. So lest we judge him too harshly, uh, we're not really any better. Um, Herod assigned the moniker of the great to himself in a uh, hilarious display of pride. Kind of like Michael Jackson decided he was the king of pop back in the 90s. The other Herod is Herod Antipas. He was born uh, the son of Herod the Great, um, and you'll find him in Matthew 14 and in Luke 3. And he ruled a quarter of the kingdom after his father's death. Um, Antipas was the one who murdered John the Baptist and cooperated with Pilate in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then the last Herod that we'll find, Herod Agrippa, who's in Acts chapter 12, um, dies the most fitting death of the Herods because he gives a speech and all the people say, the voice of a God and not of a man. And he's like, oh, stop. And then (laughs) worms eat him and he dies. So those are the Herods. What about these wise men? Who were they? Um, If you're a prophecy buff slash YouTube theology junkie slash, um, you know, Frank Peretti fan, uh, you know all kinds of stuff about the wise men. But the fact of the matter is nobody knows who they were. Um, History doesn't tell us anything about these guys, and the Bible doesn't tell us much. So since everybody's got their own ideas, I'll just share mine. Uh, I have a vivid imagination. I think that the wise men were part of a secret enclave of uh, men who made careful study from the time of Daniel all the way up to this point in history and were theologically um, aware. They were biblically literate. They understood the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament scriptures, but they were not Jews. These were foreigners. But David, I'm sorry, Daniel rather, started something in Babylon. Um, and made men want to be wise and imitate him. So I think they saw this, this star. Uh, this is all baseless, okay? It's just my idea. They saw this star, um, and, and having made a careful study of Daniel and other scriptures, um, they decide to go on this journey to Jerusalem. I also think that they were aware of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, where Balaam says, Balaam If I can get off on a minor tangent here, Balaam was not a man of God, and yet God used him uh, to speak truth, right? So his third oracle, he says, a star will rise from, and a scepter will rise from Israel. And this is in the context of a messianic promise that he makes in his third oracle. I think these wise men were aware of that. And when this particular, I don't know if it was a planetary conjunction or what, but this event in the the heavens occurs, they take note and it's enough to convince them to make this journey from um, probably Mesopotamia all the way to Jerusalem. 
How many of them were there? We don't know that either. Uh, tradition holds that there were three, but that's only because that's how many gifts are described in the Bible. So there might have only been two. There might have been 20. We don't know. Um, how did they find Jesus? Uh, this is heartbreaking, right? But I'm not going to lie to you. They did not follow a star to Jesus. Okay? If you look at the text, what it says is, we saw his star rising and in context, like the sun, stars rise in the east. So if you're in Mesopotamia and you see a star come up in the east and you follow it, you're going to end up in India or China, not west in Jerusalem. So they saw this event occur and decided it was a sign and signifier of the birth of this king, and they went the other way to Jerusalem. Now, eventually, there's a star. We'll get to that. That's part of my nugget, so I don't want to touch it yet. Um, when did this happen? Well, if you were paying attention, you might have noticed that Jesus is no longer in a manger. There are two viewpoints on this. An increasingly popular viewpoint on when this happened is that our ideas about Jesus being born in a stable are fantasy. Because houses in those days were built in such a way that the livestock could be shut up close to the house, if not on the main level itself. So this new idea, and I guess it's maybe 60, 70 years old, is that Mary and Joseph were most certainly staying with relatives since they were in their hometown in Bethlehem. And what that means is the reason that Jesus was laid in a manger is because it was the most comfortable place to put a baby given that the house was, you know, over full. So when we see the wise men visiting a house in verse 11 rather than a stable, the view is that this is the same place as Jesus was born. The correct viewpoint <laughs> on this which takes into account more scripture, like Luke 2, 7, where it says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. The correct viewpoint makes it pretty clear that they were not staying with relatives and that the baby is laid in a manger because there were no beds for them themselves wherever it was that they were staying. So when we see these wise men visiting a house rather than a stable, I believe it's because some time has passed since Jesus' birth. And now they are in a house. Then they weren't. Admittedly, this does serious damage to my preferred view that the wise men, the shepherds, and the little drummer boy were all at the manger at the same time. <laughs> but we'll, we'll let that go. Furthermore, if Herod died in 4 B.C., and the birth of Jesus was 5 or 6 B.C., and the events in Matthew could have taken place at any point in the first 18 to, to, to 24 months of his life. Mm -hmm. All right? Now that you are all sufficiently bored, <laughs> let's get into the story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And this makes perfect sense. If there's a new king in Israel, where do you go to find him? The capital of Israel, where the palace was, not Bethlehem. So I would remind you of what we noted last week. Jesus was not born in a palace, and thank God that he wasn't. So they come to Jerusalem to inquire after this new king. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. And then they quote the prophet. Verse 7, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Herod hears the news. So here's another tangential application, all right? Think through this with me. If we just take the text at face value, Herod hears the news that a king has been born, and he hears it from some foreigners who come from Mesopotamia. And the text says he was troubled. And we would all go, yeah, that makes sense. This guy's insecure. This is a threat to his dynasty. But why why is all of Jerusalem troubled with him? Right? Here's what I think. I'm pretty convinced of this, actually. When you've got a guy like Herod running things and he's troubled, you're going to be troubled too. It's not unlike the family who has an alcoholic, abusive father. When he comes home in a mood, everybody gets a little nervous about what might happen next. So fathers, take note. It's a sure sign of a wicked leader that people's negative emotions are stirred up in anticipation of what he might do. Your children should regard you as potentially dangerous. I believe that because of your superior size and strength. You might wonder if Sam still regards me as potentially dangerous. They should never anticipate evil from you. Nor should you from your pastor. Nor should you from your city council or your mayor or your state senator or your governor, or your president. It's a sign of wicked times when you are fearful of those who have authority. And that was the case here. Ooh, I'm getting a phone call. Ridiculous. This is what happens when I don't put it in do not disturb mode. I should have taken it. That would have been really funny. (laughs) So Herod assembles the pointy-haired, pointy-headed religious scholars and asks them where the Messiah is supposed to be born. Did I, did I say Herod's not a Jew? I should have said Herod's not a Jew like a long time ago. Not a Jew. Um, was uh, acquainted with Jewish religion, but he himself was not a descendant of Abraham. Um, And I say this because I find it fascinating that he asks about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. The text is really clear. In the original, the word that he uses is the word for Messiah. He doesn't say, where is this king going to be born? So he attributes 
the messianic promise to what these wise men are seeking, which is very intuitive of him. The chief priests and the scribes point to Micah 5. So let me read you Micah 5 too. You, and this is, so this is a more direct quote of what we have in Matthew 2. So listen to this. Don't try to read along in Matthew 2. You, O Bethlehem Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So the, the scholars and the scribes and the chief priests say, oh, Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, as many of you know, was no significant town in Israel. In fact, um, archaeologists now would put the population of Bethlehem then somewhere between three and 900 people. It was a pretty small little town. Verse 7, back in Matthew 2. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod holds this clandestine meeting with the wise men to ascertain when the star appeared. And from this, what does he figure out? Well, he figures out what the age range of this kid is. So you, I mean, he's already planning what he's ultimately going to do. And then the, the next phase of his evil plan involves using the wise men <clears throat> as spies. So come back and let me know when you find him so I can come worship him too. Yeah, right. But here's an interesting thing. <clears throat> Herod is by no means a believer. Not even a Jew, right? Why would he care that the Jews have some prophecy involving a savior coming from Bethlehem? Let me say it again. Herod is not a believer, okay? So when I say Herod's not a believer, what I need you to think about is your friends and colleagues who are not believers. Do they care a whit about anything that God has said? No, it's all fable, right? So why would Herod be concerned about a Messiah, a king being born in Bethlehem, a town of between three and 900 people. Well, we could say he's super insecure, and he's, so he's reading this like it's going to be trouble down the road. Like eventually some rebellion will rise out of, out of Bethlehem, and out of an abundance of caution, he wants to investigate the situation. The unbeliever, the pagan king, who doesn't believe anything that God has said, wants to investigate the situation, just to be certain. <laughs> Which of these Jews made the short journey to Bethlehem to see if there was any truth to this? None of them. Like they couldn't be bothered. The believers, the people who said that what God had written was true, the people that believed they were descendants of Abraham, 
and of the people of God who fled from Egypt. And not one of them goes, hey, wise men, I'm going to tag along. I'd like to come and see if there's any truth to this. Now, every good sermon has a burr in it, right? A burr is one of those things when you're out walking around trying to be, uh, er, uh, what's the word? Like, in nature. I can't think of another word for it. And you're tromping around in the prairie grass eight minutes away from the city, but it feels like (laughs) you're in nature. And you get in the car to head home and something is bothering you between the knee and the foot and you keep scratching at it and you finally poke your finger and you look down and there's one of those little balls with the spikes all coming out of it, right? That's a burr. Al Martin taught me uh, 20 years ago that every good sermon needs to have a burr in it. And that's something that as you're driving home will bother you because you're going you're gonna to think, did he put that in there because of me? Um, so none of the Jews are interested or going to be bothered to go to Bethlehem and see. And I couldn't help but think, man, there are Sunday mornings where I don't want to, so I'll make it me, so you don't have to suspect yourself, but I am thinking of one of you. Um, (laughs) There are Sundays when I don't want to get out of my warm bed and drink my hot, delicious coffee and get into a warm shower and put on comfortable clothes and get in my suspension having automatic transmission heated enclosed vehicle and drive to church because I just don't feel up to it. So are we a lot different than the Jews who couldn't be bothered to take a little journey to Bethlehem or are we like kind of worse in some sense? Like that's the guilt burger. That's it. That's all I've got. Um, One of the things that, that, you can use to measure this in your own heart is if you've neglected or struggled to read your own Bible, you've neglected or struggled to spend time in prayer privately, or you've neglected somebody that you should be caring for, odds are Sunday morning it's going to be harder to get up and not neglect this, right? Um, Verse 9, moving right along here. After listening to the king... They went on their way, and behold, the star that they had, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So here's the supernatural guide. There is no natural planetary conjunction phenomenon that explains this. This is the star that they're now following. I, I thought, I wondered, okay, why before is the star in the east? And it's kind of like, you can explain it. Um, again, there's YouTube videos that talk about what the star that the wise men saw was like. We can go back, right? We know enough about the night sky that astronomers can put it into a computer, a date, and a geographical location and take you right back to around 5 BC and show you what was happening in the night sky to the east. So they figured out what this was to begin with, but there's no practical explanation for what happens in verses 
9 and 10. And so then the question you have to ask yourself is, okay, why didn't the star just rise in the west to begin with so they could follow it and then swoop around the north so they could go to Bethlehem? Or maybe been the other Bethlehem that was six miles to the south of Jerusalem. I'm not sure, and I didn't have time to really figure it out. It was one of the two. The northern Bethlehem was further, but the southern one is even more of a condemnatory geographical location because it would have been about a one-hour walk from Jerusalem to there. I'm giving them credit and saying it was the one to the north. Anyway, point being, why was this there? You can tell I'm tired. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, and I'll give you extra time to get there because I'm, this Bible is new. And the pages kind of stick together. First part of Hebrews 11, we're just going to look at verse 6. Why all of a sudden the supernatural phenomenon of the star? That's the question I'm trying to answer. Hebrews 11:6 says, and if you're not reading along, at least listen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think the star was God rewarding those that seek him. The wise men rejoiced because they had confirmation. Now let's hit the rewind button and go back to wherever Mesopotamia they came from. Think through this with me. It's it's riveting if you do. (laughs) Which just means if I'm not riveting, I've blamed you for it. Um, These guys are, they have their little club where they keep an eye on this, the night sky. And they're learned men. They're secular men, but they're learned men. And they see this star rise in the east, and something about their study of astronomy and study of the scriptures leads them to conclude the king, the one promised, has been born in Bethlehem. And they're so convinced that they go and tell their wives, hey, we're going to take about a year-long journey. I hope that's okay because we think a king has been born in Israel. And they saddle up, I don't know, their camels, and with all the supplies that they're going to need for an 800-mile trip from where they were to Jerusalem. Right Now, that's a long journey full of toils and dangers and snares. Right? Imagine you're on that trip, And the only thing you have to go on is you saw a star rise in the east and you've made a study of numbers, 24. You get to Jerusalem. You finally get to Jerusalem expecting everything to be abuzz with the news of the new king. And you show up and it's ho-hum business as usual. You're going to feel pretty stupid. Right away, right away, right? Oh, okay. Boy, were we wrong, and boy, is my wife not going to be happy when I get back home. But they gird up their loins and ask around, and nobody has any idea what they're talking about. They end up talking to Herod, who's assembled the chief priests and the scribes, and they've told him, he, this king is not going to appear in Jerusalem. He's going to appear in Bethlehem. And not a one of those guys says, come on, we'll show you. We want to go see too. Mm-hmm. 
But the wise men are still just convinced enough to go ahead and make the trip north to Bethlehem and see for themselves. And no sooner did they set out than miraculously, the star that rose in the east rolls around to the north and parks right over the top of the house where Mary and Joseph were with Jesus. Why did they rejoice with exceedingly great joy? Because they got a little bit of confirmation that they were on the right track. This is us. We're the stupid people. Convinced in our hearts that something miraculous and remarkable has happened, that God in mercy has sent a savior to the worst of sinners. And we sit in here on Sunday morning and it's a little easier to believe it, right? Because we've got one another and we're all singing together, minus a few people. Everybody's kind of encouraging everyone else along this path of faith. But then you're going to go out there into the world this week and you're going to run into people who don't vibrate with energy over the fact that these things have been revealed to us. We want to come to church and sing songs. We want to come to church and study the scriptures. We want to have fellowship with people who are convinced of the same things as us. Christmas means something to us. Amen? Amen. Okay, that's better than we were doing three weeks ago when I started this whole Christmas thing. But it's not about jingle bells or Frosty the Snowman or the weather outside being frightful or chestnuts roasting over an open fire. Christmas means something to us because it's about our hearts being forever changed. Because we're convinced of something that happened 2,000 years ago, the same way the wise men were convinced of something that happened 2,000 years ago. And we are on our own journey of finally seeing him face to face, but we're not there yet. And so God gives us these little nuggets along the way, along the path, when it gets hard for us because the world around us is just doing business as usual, man. In fact, the only reason Christmas means anything to the lost and dying world around us is because there are some sales and apparently people buy their wives cars this time of year. I don't know anybody who's ever done it, but you would think based on the commercials, that's really the point of Christmas. A Lexus with a bow on it. I feel like I'm insane for believing the things that I believe sometimes. The wise men had to feel the same way. And the star appears. And they go from confused and unsure to rejoicing. I get discouraged. And for me, it's often my wife who snaps me out of it because she will offer some word, some encouragement, some little tidbit of wisdom that hadn't occurred to me. Sometimes it's one of you that snaps me out of it. Frequently in the last six weeks, it's been somebody in our ridiculous signal group that snaps me out of it. More often than not, though, it's when I open my Bible and read it. God rewards those who seek him, and they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Verse 11 Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
They fell down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures. And they gave Jesus, the infant, these amazing, extravagant gifts. While he was helpless and could do nothing for them, they gave him these gifts from faith. I could only think of one other time in Scripture when Jesus was given something while he was helpless. So listen to this. This is John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The wise men treated Jesus like God when he was a baby. They gave him worship and they offered him gifts. The Son of God treated his enemies like friends. He hung there on the cross, giving himself as the greatest gift of all. And when he had breathed his last, the souls of all who believe in him were redeemed from sin. When he hung there on the cross, no longer making any sound, the angels in heaven began to prepare to rejoice and celebrate at your repentance. When the Son of God, Mary's boy, hung on the cross, no longer suffering, he accomplished all that God had promised in the beginning. So why these wise men? Why do they come from the east? And why do they come through Jerusalem? And why do they come to Bethlehem? Because somebody, Somebody needed to treat Jesus like a king at some point. And it's so fitting that they did it when he wasn't yet in human terms worthy of it. He was still an infant. So when you see the wise men opening their treasures, I want you to see God opening his treasures. And giving the greatest thing that he had in order to redeem you from sin. When you see the wise men giving him gold fit for a king's crown, I want you to remember the crown of thorns that was fit for your brow. When you see the wise men giving Jesus frankincense fit for royalty, I want you to see the flogging that he took fit for your back. And when you see the wise men giving Jesus myrrh fit for the Lord of Lords, I want you to remember the sour wine that was raised to his lips, but it was fit for yours. 
why we do Christmas. Because it's worth remembering. There was a moment when the Savior, the Son of God, actually came into the world to redeem sinners from sin. This Jesus, who no one regarded other than a very few, let's adore.